Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Grace City Church podcast. If you would like more info on our church, you can visit gracecityboston.com. Now let's get to the sermon. Yeah, it's, it's so great to worship in a building that's an answer to a long time of prayer. We were praying for a space. We were meeting in the park for so long. Uh, and so it's so great. It just, it just helps my heart when I'm worshiping in a place uh, that we were praying and fasting toward uh, for so long. Um, but it comes with a bit of a time constraint, so I'm going to hop right in. Uh, today we're talking about faith. Uh, Advent is kind of centered around these four themes, uh, hope, faith, joy, and peace. Uh, and I think that faith is the one that kind of undergirds the other three. Uh, it strengthens the other three, kind of gives you the reason to have hope, joy, and peace. So uh, today we're going to answer the question, what is faith? And what, more specifically, what is biblical faith? And I want to do this so that we can, uh, we can feel free to grow in our faith without being uh, chained to our doubts and the things that pop up that make us think, well, maybe is this true? Is this not true? Uh, and we will be able to share our faith with other people. We'll be able to have strong conversations about other people about what we believe. Okay, so let's first talk about what faith is not. Okay, let's rule some things out. So some popular, uh, some popular ideas of what faith is in our culture today. Uh, I was... Uh, I was listening to something the other day from Richard Dawkins, very popular evolutionary biologist, staunch atheist. This is kind of a very far example, but he says, faith is belief that's not based on evidence. That's what the definition of faith is to Richard Dawkins. And he says it's one of the world's greatest evils. So we're off to a great start here. You guys are all evil. It's great. But uh, not everyone believes something that harsh. Uh, but something else uh, that I've heard recently, one of our college students, actually, we were having a question and answer night for House Church, and they brought me some quotes from their professor at BU in their religion class. And they said this about faith and religion. They said, um, faith is a suspension of belief because you are giving up a sense of reality as religion cannot be proven or faith cannot be proven. When you believe in religion or faith, you sacrifice truth, validity, and reason. Religion is rooted in deception itself. So think about what this says about you. If you're sitting here and you're a person of faith, you identify as a believer, something like that, this says a lot of bad things about you, if these narratives are true. If you're a person of faith in this room, whether you're capable of defending your faith or not, these statements say that we are evil, deceived, unrealistic, unreasonable, and invalid. And this is a realistic thing that we have to address. A lot of people believe these things. Even believers, like even Christians, believe sometimes that we believe not based on evidence and that's somehow noble to do that. But I think that that's a really bad spot to be in because when we think that about what we believe, it kind of chains us uh, and prevents us from growing in our faith because we have these doubts that kind of hold us back along the way. Now, it's okay to have doubts, but what I want to do today is address those doubts and strengthen our faith as we go into this Advent season so that we can worship God uh, in, in a more wholesome way, a more wholesale way. We can worship God without any sort of reservations about what we're worshiping Him for, okay? 
And so this idea that faith is not based on evidence and that it's noble to just believe what Jesus says or believe what the Bible says just because, uh, that's not how Jesus meant for our faith to be. Through the Gospels, we see Jesus was really kind of obsessed with showing proofs to people. And the only reason people denied him was not because he wasn't giving them proofs and evidence. It was because uh, they were sinful and they didn't want him to be true. They didn't want what he was preaching to be true. We also saw this is not how the apostles saw it. This is not how the apostles preached the gospel to other people. And this is not how they expected to win people to Christ by just imploring them and begging them to just believe. Okay? They shared eyewitness testimonies and argued based off evidence, uh, which was the foundation of everything that they gave their lives up for. So today, today uh, our, our simple goal here is to define biblical faith what is it? What are the things that we must believe according to Jesus to be a follower of Jesus? And what is the reason? What are the reasons that we actually believe these things? Uh, and we want to do this so that we can respond and worship this Advent season to the one true God who has made this faith available to us. Uh, so if you have your QR code, my, uh, our sermon notes will be on there. That'll, go, that'll have all the scripture we're going to go through today. Uh, we'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, and before we get started, uh, let me pray over our time here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, that it's reliable. We thank you that you're a God who, who understands how we think, who created us, and understands that um, we, we want proof. We want evidence. We want to see how you have worked. And you give us that evidence. You give us that proof. And we find it mainly in your word. And I pray that you would, uh, you would open our hearts to your truth today. You would help us uh, to hold these verses in our hearts and our minds. And we would know these things so that we can walk closely with you. And we can be a light to others in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so our question today is, what is biblical faith? So we're going to define this word faith first. So this Greek word that we translate to faith is called pistis. It means trust or reliability in something. It means having a firm conviction that something is true, okay? Not based, uh, or, or it is based on something. It's not irrational. It's not based on some loose idea. In the Bible, it's often used to uh, describe what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus. You hear this all, you see this all the time in the New Testament. Faith in the gospel. We kind of read it so much, we kind of almost be, we're almost numb to what the words actually mean. If we're using this definition of faith, what this Greek word pistis means, it means we have a trust, a reliable, firm conviction that this gospel, this good news of Jesus is true. Okay, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 defines faith as the reality of what is hoped for the proof of what is not seen. So this thing that we hope for, that we, that we wish was true, there's a reality that this is actually true. This hope for reality that the Messiah was going to come to save the world has become a reality. It's the proof of what we have not seen. This thing that most believers were not eyewitnesses to, we haven't seen it with our own eyes, but the proof, the evidence is overwhelming that I believe anyway because there's enough eyewitness testimony that I believe it. I didn't see it, but there's proof of what I haven't seen, so I still believe it. I still believe it. Faith is not necessarily being an eyewitness to an event, but seeing enough proof from others who have seen it 
to be convinced of it yourself. Okay, this is biblical faith. This is how the authors of scripture define faith. Okay, so let's get into our scripture. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing to a church in Corinth that has had had so many problems, and they are full of doubts about whether Paul is the real deal or not, whether he's actually a representative of Christ. They're like, we like all these other speakers because they speak more eloquently than you, so we're not sure if we want to believe you. Uh, We tried to pay you for your message, and you rejected the money, and so now we're like, do you even believe what you're saying? If you read through 1 Corinthians, these are the kind of problems, these kind of superficial problems they have with Paul's message. But they're kind of missing the point because he's trying to be like Christ. He's trying to serve them and not not give them any reason to think that he's doing this for money or something else. So let's start in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to say what our faith is and what's most important that we believe and why we believe it. Okay. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. So here's what's most important to believe. One, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Two, that he was buried. Three, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the 12 disciples. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. You can go talk to them, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his brother, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me, Paul. Okay, so he says uh, in in three and four here, he says what we believe. So let's take that down and pick that apart. What we believe as most important, one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and Christ rose according to the scriptures. And he was buried in between that. We know for a fact he was dead. He was dead, dead. And then he was alive. And this was all according to the Old Testament. So what does Paul mean here? When he says according to the scriptures, what does he mean? He is citing Old Testament prophecies. He's saying there is Uh, evidence from the past that this was going to happen. This is before he even gets into the eyewitness testimony. Outside of things that are people who are actually alive that you can go talk to, this was prophesied 600 years ago by the prophet Isaiah and lots of other prophets. I'm just going to pick the most popular one. So in your sermon notes there, we have a a scripture, Isaiah chapter 53. This is probably people's favorite prophecy, like the most uh, famous prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion crucifixion because it's so specific, okay? This is like 600 years before Christ. God gives this vision to Isaiah and he sees this and writes it down. It says, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This was prophesied. Now, when Isaiah is writing this down, he's probably like, 
He's probably in some trance. God's giving him this vision. He probably doesn't even know what exactly he's writing down, but he's just preaching this to Judah, saying, this is what God's telling you to trust in. There's this promise, this guy is coming and he will be a suffering servant for God's people. Christ died according to the scriptures. If we continue on to verse 10, we see how uh, it's according to the scriptures that Christ would raise from the dead. This man would raise from the dead. In verse 10, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make a guilt offering, he will see his seed or his son. He will prolong his days and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. 600 years before the death of Christ, this prophecy was given. So we see that Paul here is citing evidence from the past before he give, even gets in to who's still alive. Who could you actually right now go talk to, Corinthians, and see that this is true? But then he continues on and talks about evidence from the present. So after he says that these are the core things that we believe that Christ died according to the scriptures for our sins so that we may be saved, he gets into uh, evidence from the present or Paul's present at the time. And he gives this list. He says, after Christ rose from the dead, I mean, look at this, like it's a very full list. He says, first he was revealed to Peter and then the rest of the 12 disciples, and then 500 believers who are in Jerusalem at Peter's church. You can go talk to them. Uh, and then he appeared to his brother, James, who mocked him with the rest of his brothers, and then to me, Paul, who used to kill Christians. He, re he, he revealed himself after the resurrection to all of us. So this is a pretty big claim. And if it's just a claim, you can easily just say, well, Paul's, Paul could easily be lying, right? Paul could easily just be saying this uh, because he wants to convince them. He could just be lying. But the great thing about our scriptures is that it's full of these people's eyewitness testimony. And I hope that when we read these next scriptures, it helps kind of shape our view of the New Testament that our, uh, a lot of people believe in the Bible because people just say it's reliable or, or they believe the Bible's reliable because it's the Bible. It's kind of this circular reasoning thing. But I hope this kind of flips our perspective and helps us understand that we think the New Testament is God's holy scriptures because it's reliable, because it's eyewitness evidence that proves to be true. So we're going to go through, we have scripture from Peter, from John, who's one of the 12, and from James, Jesus's brother, all attesting to eyewitness, uh, eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Jesus. So let's go through these and just knock these down one at a time and see if if Paul's actually right here. So he lists all these people were eyewitnesses. Let's go through. What does Cephas or Peter have to say? We have 2 Peter chapter 1. He starts his letter off saying, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from, the, from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am, whom I am well pleased. That's at his baptism. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain at the transfiguration. Peter's saying, I was with him this whole time. I would know if he was lying. I was with him from the baptism, transfiguration. He was there at the resurrection. And now he's leading his church in Jerusalem. He's saying, I would know if Jesus is lying. I was an eyewitness. And let's just pause for a second to realize Peter understands this is a crazy thing to believe. Like we come here every Sunday and we sit and we learn about Jesus. But week after week, 
We are making a claim that we believe that God became a man and died for our sins and that that has restored us to this new life. This supernatural event has happened. We are making an incredibly bold claim when we show up here and believe every week. And so Peter understands people need eyewitness evidence. God understands people want eyewitness evidence. They want to see this. This is what's, gonna, this is what's needed to strengthen people's faith, to give them faith. So that's what Peter has to say. What does John, one of the 12, have to say? 1 John 1.1, he says this, and he speaks very poetic, poetically. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, which is what he calls Jesus in his gospel. That life was revealed and we have seen it. We testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He's writing to encourage them by giving them eyewitness testimony, to assure them, this is true. I saw it. I'm staking my life on it. And finally, what does James, Peter's half-brother, have to say? Before I read well, I'll just go ahead and read it because it's just one sentence. James 1.1, 1, 1, the first verse of James, he just opens it up and just says, James, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I am. And if you read in your gospel, in, in the gospel of John chapter seven, you read that Jesus's brothers mocked him for walking around with these disciples. They're like, what are you doing? I know you, you're my brother. I've grown up with you. There's nothing special about you. Why you have all these people follow you? You didn't even get properly educated. Why are you teaching the Torah, the Old Testament, like you know what it says? And they mocked him. And there was, there's no evidence that they followed him during his ministry. Something happened, something supernatural happened that made Jesus, uh, James say, you know what, I'm gonna worship my half-brother. I'm, I'm just gonna call him Lord and uh, start planting churches and start telling everyone that Jesus, my brother, resurrected from the dead. Uh, that's not really something you just make up. It's not something you just do, okay? And so we've got Peter, John, and James, as Paul said, with eyewitness evidence. And that's why we believe these things as scripture. That's why we see these people as apostles because they are eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Now this was, this was game changer for me growing up in church. I had so many doubts. And when I came to college, I was prepared to give those things up. This is the stuff that really undergirds my personal faith. If this stuff is not available, I'm probably not here right now. And I, I think that there's a lot of people that feel the exact same way. And the writers of scripture think that that's absolutely normal. It's absolutely normal to have doubts. And it's absolutely normal for God to appease those doubts and give us evidence. Okay, so now what do we do with this? We have this evidence. We know that this is true beyond a reasonable doubt. We know that this is true, but what do we do with this? What is the point of this? Well, Paul's gonna go on, we're gonna read in 1 Corinthians 15 again, starting in verse 12. He's going to go on and explain to them that this absolutely has to be true or you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be in this church. You shouldn't be believing in Jesus because it would be so dumb for you to believe this if Christ did not rise from the grave. The resurrection specifically uh, is, he says, our entire faith is sort of sitting on that. That's like the linchpin. If you pull that out, it's like a deck of cards. It's all gone. 
So let's read what, what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? They had this doubt. They didn't believe that that was possible, which is kind of logical. But Paul says, If there's no resurrection from the dead at all, then not even Christ has been raised, if you say that it's completely impossible. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. So he says, if we're sitting here and proclaiming this truth and it's not true, we're falsely testifying about God. And there is a huge burden on us when we meet God, when we die, to answer, why were you professing this false thing? Paul was a zealous Pharisaical Jew. He cares about being accurate and accurately representing God. So he's not, he would not do this if he was not completely convinced. Remember, he was killing Christians. Finish up this passage in, uh, in verse 17 and 18. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins if Christ has not resurrected. Those then who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have also perished, not to be resurrected. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning he's the first one to do so. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection, also, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also those in Christ all will be made alive. Okay, so we have all of this testimony. Paul, an eyewitness on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him in the spirit, blinded him. He was on his way to kill more Christians, and he, Jesus stopped him in the middle of the road. This is his claim. There were people with him as well. Paul went from killing Christians to being killed for Christ after being imprisoned a bunch of times. He killed them because they believed Jesus resurrected from the dead, and he believed that that endangered the Pharisees' teaching and endangered his group of people. And so that is why it's so outstanding that Paul believes these things. Let's go through all these people. James, Jesus' half-brother, we already talked about this. He went from mocking his brother to worshiping his brother. People don't do that. Eleven of the twelve disciples pretty much gave up when Jesus died. It's documented that they disappeared. They went into mourning. They were, they were like, I cannot believe he deceived us like that. Jesus went and died on a cross. What is he doing? What exactly could be benefited from Jesus dying on a cross? They were completely done. They were like, this is all a hoax, I guess. We're just going to go back to being fishermen. Peter went back to the ocean. He went back to being a fisherman. Then something happened a few days later where all these people were believing and then they were going out being persecuted for preaching that Jesus had risen from, from the dead. Something happened that completely changed their mind and they were like, oh my gosh, he's not dead. Something happened. 11 of the 12 went on to be killed for their faith. Peter was crucified upside down by Romans because he didn't want to be killed in the same way Jesus was. So he said, crucify me upside down. Others were crucified, some were stoned, some were boiled in a pot of oil. John was the only one who didn't get martyred, but he was exiled onto an island where he wrote the Revelation, Alcatraz style. 
who's basically exiled to death. What ulterior motive would they have had to go on preaching this for their whole life to the point of death? There's no money, there's no sex, there's no power. The church in Jerusalem was as poor as poor can be. Many of these people uh, had, were faithful to one wife. There's no ulterior motive there. There definitely wasn't power. The whole message they preached was that we need to give up any power we have to serve those around us. They gave up everything. There's no ulterior motive. Okay, so the bulk of, the bulk of what we're talking about today is the evidence for what we, what we believe. And we can get really excited and be like, okay, what I came here believing has been sort of confirmed. That makes me feel good. I'm getting confirmation for what I believe. But that's, if we leave here today and we just, we get all this evidence and we're like, oh, that's great. I don't have to change what I believe. I get to confirm what I believe. Or I get to win an argument against my atheist friend or my friend who mocks me about Christianity or something. If that's the best that we pull from this, then we failed. We do not, we do not, I do not sit here and preach this stuff to you so that you can go win some arguments. You'll probably be able to win some arguments, I guess, but that is not why we're doing this, okay? Jesus rose from the dead. This is true beyond any reasonable doubt. Okay, but the thing that we need to take from this is that that truth changes us and it frees us from our sins. Let's go back to what Paul says in verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. We believe that Christ has been raised and therefore we are no longer in our sins. This is why we need the eyewitness evidence. Not, yes, we will go win people with, this tru- with these truths, but we need this eyewitness evidence for us. Our biggest need is reconciliation with God. We as sinful people rejected God and we needed this to happen. So if we leave here today and we think, oh, that's great. What I've believed for a long time is confirmed. I don't have to change anything. Then that is, that's not a good goal. That's not a good thing to take from this if it's the ultimate thing, if it's the the best thing that we we take from this. So if I could put this in a phrase, we got some noise going on somewhere. It's okay. We're all right. If we put this in a phrase, We believe the resurrection and we rejoice in the fact that it's true, not so that we can say to others, we're right, you're wrong, but to be able to say to others, I'm forgiven, you can be too, I promise you, I swear to you, I promise. Look at the evidence, look what God did for you, look what Jesus has done for you, look what he's promised in the future. So we see that Paul, we were going through this passage, Paul cited evidence from the past, said this was all according to the scriptures. And then he cited evidence from his present time. He said, you can go talk to all these people in Jerusalem, 500 people. There's all these other apostles, eyewitnesses. You can read their scriptures. We have what they've written down. They were all witnesses. He uses the past and the present to, to, to supply their faith. But even more than that, he uses it to help us look forward to the future. So there's a whole past, present, future thing happening here. He says, because of the past, and because of what's happened, and what's happening right now as the church is spreading over and over and over again, it's multiplying, because this is true, because of this, we have a sure hope that we will also be resurrected. 
just as Christ was bodily resurrected and received his perfected body, that is our hope, that is our future. Another really bold claim. If you come here week after week and you say, I believe this, this is the claim that you're making, that the Son of God came to earth, died, was buried, was raised on the third day, and that we will do the exact same things that Jesus did. Just as Jesus rose, we will rise. Paul says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just in Adam, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There is a physical and a spiritual reality to this being made alive. We will receive a physical, perfected body. Our bodies in the grave will rise to perfected bodies like Jesus. Because he did it, we will do it because we are in Christ. And there is a spiritual reality. Our sin, our sinful desires, the sin within us, the desire to live for our fleshly desires and abandon God's guidance for our life will be over. The struggle will be over. Right now, as new people with new life, believers, we can fight those sins. We're not enslaved to them. There will come a day where it is completely over. The struggle is gone. The war is over. In Jesus' eyes, it's already over. So last week, Brian sent out a, uh, a teaching on hope. That was technically our first week of Advent. And this is what I meant at the beginning, that the, our faith is what gives us the reason to hope, to have peace, to express joy, to have all these things. If we are not sure that this is the case, then this Advent season, this Christmas season, it's going to be really hard to not see Christmas as a bunch of gifts or family, or, you know, this materialism thing that's popped up. You know, we say every year Christmas is about more than the gifts and that and this, that, and the other. But if our faith is not strong, it's not rooted in facts like this, a lot of times it's just, it's just too much for us. We're like, yeah, that's just, it's very nice, but I want my gifts. Uh, you know, I want to see these people, like, that's what Christmas is about. So my goal here today, as we, as we have read our scripture, is that we understand what biblical faith is. And that this can strengthen our faith and not hold us back when we try to grow in our faith. And we, we're not double-minded when we try to grow in our faith and we think, oh, but, but I'm not really sure if God's faithful. I'm not really sure if God answers his, his promises. I'm not really sure if God actually did this. Am I believing some hoax, some lie? This really holds us back. Many people struggle with this. And, uh, and we have to address that as a church. So many people have just been told when they have doubts and questions just don't worry about that. And there's, there's no reason for it. There's just no reason for it. So today, as I close, um, hold this in your heart when we worship, that we are not worshiping in vain. Christ has risen. We are not preaching this in vain. Christ has risen. We're not meeting every week in vain. Christ has risen. We are not hoping for the end of suffering, the end of sin, the end of pain in vain. Christ has risen. This is true, and this is what we believe, and this is why we believe it.